Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. We are coming toward the end of this book, really just a few weeks left as we follow the journey of Jesus. Now we are in his, uh, what's called his passion, that is his suffering and death, and eventually leading, of course, to his resurrection. The last time we were in John's gospel, we saw Jesus on the cross. Jesus was condemned to death to die uh, as a traitor to Rome on false charges, of course, through no wrongdoing of his own. Yet he was condemned to be crucified, and so the Roman governor Pilate delivered him over to the soldiers, and they led him to this hill outside of Jerusalem, and between two other criminals, actual criminals, robbers, he uh, was crucified. And so the, the passage we looked at last time ended with the death of Jesus. Just as a reminder, if you'll look at verse 28 of chapter 19, you see these words. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus has died, and even in his dying, he gave up his spirit. And John, I think, even words it to demonstrate to us that Jesus is in command. Jesus is in control. He is simply drinking the cup that his father had given him to drink. So Jesus is no victim. This cry of it is finished is not a cry of defeat. It is a cry of victory. It has been accomplished. The work I have come to do has been done. I have been obedient to my father all the way to the end. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The verses we will look at today have all to do with what happens to the lifeless body of Jesus after his death. It is obviously and necessarily dark. It is heavy and somber and in a way difficult to witness and observe and to consider. And yet John has very important truths for us to see in the midst of this. He didn't just skip ahead to he gave up his spirit to he rose from the dead. There's things that happen here to the lifeless body of our Lord that we need to pay attention to, that we can learn from and gain from. So specifically, there are three things that happen to Jesus' body during this period of time and during these verses, beginning with verse 31 and ending in verse 42. So we'll simply take those things in turn. The first thing that happens with Jesus' body that's of note is that his bones are spared from being broken. 
That actually is kind of something that doesn't happen to Jesus' body. Nevertheless, John finds it important for us to stop and take note that the bones of Jesus' body are not broken. Look with me at verses 31 to 33. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. We're going to pause there. The Roman custom was to leave a victim of crucifixion hanging on the cross for days. In fact, death by crucifixion could be a very long and drawn out process because despite all of the pain of nails and beatings that had happened before and all of that, what actually ended up killing a victim of crucifixion more often than not was suffocation. Because the way that this worked, and forgive me for the graphicness, the darkness of this, the way that this worked was the, the hands of the victim are hanging are above the head and nailed to the cross, and then the feet of the victim are put one on top of another with a spike driven through that to the cross. And the weight of the body made it so that the lungs would constrict. In order to breathe, the person on the cross would have to push up with his legs for, in order for his lungs to expand, to take in a breath, and then lower again as he exhaled. And so it required the ongoing use of the leg muscles to even enable himself to breathe. Even that is obviously agonizing, pushing up on the feet that have nails drawn through them and the pressure and the scraping of the back along the cross. It is obviously brutal and designed to bring about the maximum possible amount of pain. So even staying alive to suffer on the cross was an agonizing event. Every breath was a burden. Every breath took everything in them, if you will, to press up uh, with their leg muscles so that they could even continue breathing. And eventually, the leg muscles would simply give way. They just couldn't do it anymore. And so the body would uh, hang, unable to breathe, and the victim would eventually suffocate. And that's how they would die on the cross. It's a terrible, horrible way for someone to die, obviously. But the Roman custom was, even after the victim had died, just leave them hanging on the cross for days, exposed to the elements and animals and whatever else, the rot that would obviously start to set in to a dead body, as a further warning, a deterrent. This is what happens to an enemy of Rome, right? If you're thinking about betraying Rome somehow or leading a revolt or joining a revolt against Caesar, this is what's going to happen to you. That's, in a sense, what the Romans are attempting to achieve by leaving the body on the cross for days. But the Jewish custom was different than that. And in fact, according to Jewish law in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, they were actually required when someone was executed in this way by being hanged on a tree, the law actually required them to take down the body and bury it the same night so as to avoid God's curse and the defilement of the land. So the Jewish nation, the Jewish law was, 
once someone has died, they need to be taken down immediately and buried and removed to avoid the land and the people becoming defiled and avoiding this curse of God. So, John tells us in verse 31, the Jews, that is the Jewish leaders, the ones who have been orchestrating this whole execution, go to Pilate, the Roman governor, and ask for permission to basically speed up the process whereby these men on the crosses would die. And once again, forgive me for the brutality here, the uh, way that this was done was with a large iron mallet that would smash the legs of the people on the cross, thus obviously destroying their ability to continue to push themselves up and breathe. So it sped up their suffocation. So they ask Pilate, will you break their legs so that they will be removed, they will die faster and we'll be able to get them down? Now what's their concern? John tells us again in verse 31, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. So remember, this is the evening before the Sabbath day, and not just any Sabbath day, but the Sabbath of Passover week. This is the annual celebration of God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt and his sparing of their firstborn sons from death. And so Sabbath is coming. Sundown is near. And so they need to get in a hurry to get these bodies down from the cross and buried so that they are not defiled on this Sabbath day and this special Sabbath day as it is during the Passover week. And so they ask Pilate to have the legs broken. And so Pilate uh, obliges this request and he sends soldiers to the three men. Remember, Jesus is in the middle and we've got two robbers, a robber on either side of him. And so they send soldiers there, apparently, to do this. And John tells us, verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. So apparently going from either side and working their way to the middle, they break the legs of the two robbers who have been crucified with Jesus, thus hastening their death. But when they come to Jesus, verse 33, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. They did not break his legs. Why is that of note? Why is that a detail that John includes for us? Why is it worth seeing and, and, and taking note of the fact that the other robbers on the cross had their legs broken, but Jesus, his legs, they did not break. He was already dead well he tells us down in verse 36 if you skip ahead just a little bit these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled here's the scripture not one of his bones will be broken okay whose bones is the question that that citation raises whose bones is that scripture talking about so little history review in the book of Exodus, as Israel has grown up in slavery in Egypt, God raises up a leader named Moses to lead his people out of slavery. He sends Moses to Pharaoh, the Egyptian ruler, and says, let my people go. Is Pharaoh going to go along with that and say, sure, take off? Of course not. 
He's going to have to tell him nine times, right? Let my people go. Not going to do it, okay? Then pestilence and plague and disaster come upon the people of Egypt in all kinds of terrible and weird ways through infestations of locusts and frogs and the river turning to blood and all of their livestock dying and these painful boils that break out on them. All kinds of bad stuff God visits upon the Egyptians because Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. Finally, the ninth and worst plague is that God tells them, I will strike dead the firstborn son in every household in the land of Egypt. Every firstborn son in every household in the land of Egypt will be struck dead. But the people of Israel will have a way to be spared that death. And that would be through the killing of a lamb the shedding of its blood, and then the smearing of its blood upon the doorposts of their house. And so when the angel of death, it tells us in Exodus, comes through to visit death upon the household of Egypt, when he sees the blood of the lamb upon the door of the Israelite homes, he would spare their firstborns. And so they would not suffer that consequence. And so the blood of a lamb being posted upon their door led to the angel of death passing over their houses. That's where Passover gets its name. That, of course, is the final thing that Pharaoh can't handle anymore. And so he finally relents and says, go. And so that is what leads the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So when... God gives this Passover sign to the people of Israel. He tells them, you're going to do this every year forever. And when you do it, he gives them some particular rules. And here's the verse that I want you to see that John is quoting from. In Exodus 12, verse 46, he's speaking to Moses and the people. Here's how you are to uh, handle this lamb and what you're to do with it. It says, It shall be eaten, that is the lamb, shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Whose bones aren't being broken? The bones of the Passover lamb. The lamb slain to spare the lives of the Israelites' firstborn. The lamb slain to deliver the people of God from bondage. And so we see Jesus upon the cross. His body spared the breaking of bones to fulfill this scripture, that none of its bones, that is the bones of the Passover lamb, would be broken. That's the scripture that is being fulfilled in this apparent non-event, that Jesus' bones didn't get broken. What that reminds us of, what John wants us to see, is what John the Baptist said of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Jesus, crucified, lifeless, his death brings about deliverance of God's people from bondage. 
his blood was shed so that we could be spared from death, so that we could be delivered from our bondage to sin and death. So Jesus is the Passover lamb. It's no accident that the crucifixion took place during Passover. That is God's meticulous providence in demonstrating the fulfillment of this ages-long tradition and commemoration is fulfilled in Jesus' death on the cross. He becomes the sacrifice for sins. Praise God for His mercy to us in the death of Jesus. Have you had your sins forgiven, your soul freed from bondage to sin by turning to Jesus Christ in faith? He invites us all. Look upon Him. Come to Him in faith. Repent of sin and His death as the Passover lamb will be applied to us and we will be delivered from our bondage to sin and death. His bones were not broken. Praise God. The second thing that happens to his body is that his side is pierced. His side is pierced. Go up at verse 34. One of the soldiers, so after they've come to Jesus and found that his legs, or that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So apparently in an effort to confirm what was evident to the naked eye, that is that Jesus had died already, this soldier takes a spear and pierces Jesus' side. John tells us at once there came out blood and water. At once meaning at the same time. Both blood and water together, distinct from one another, but there clearly seen. Now, in the interest of time and of not grossing you out too much, Let me simply say that there are plausible medical explanations for the appearance of two distinct fluids appearing upon uh, this piercing uh, that would be intended to confirm death. And in fact, the presence of these two fluids, what John calls blood and water, probably looked like water, wasn't actually water per se, are a firm indication that the body has ceased to function and the victim has been dead for some time. So, At the most basic narrative level, the piercing of Jesus' side has the function of informing the reader, Jesus is dead. Jesus is really dead. He's not mostly dead. He's all dead. So the piercing of Jesus' side and the appearing of this water and blood together conclusively shows us Jesus has truly died. So there will be none of this theories of Jesus merely fainting and then just, you know, kind of coming to himself later after they've buried him. Nothing like that will work. Jesus is clearly and obviously dead. But John doesn't want us to just speed past that detail and just observe, okay, Jesus has died. Now let's keep going. In fact, he sort of urges us. He he sort of like grabs you by the shoulders and goes, look at this. Don't miss this. Look at verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. 
Why are we getting so serious all of a sudden, John, about like us really taking you at your word on this? Now, I think that this, the one who bore witness was John himself. It's consistent with how he refers to himself as the beloved disciple or another disciple and kind of in the third person throughout this gospel. And we know that John was near enough to the cross for just a few verses earlier, Jesus to address him directly when he said, behold your mother and woman, behold your son. And so we know that John has been near the cross and he is reporting all this as an eyewitness. And so now he's drawing our attention to that. I saw this. This is true. I saw this with my own eyes. I promise you this happened that you may believe. So what is he trying to get our attention for? What is it that you want us to see here, John? Why are you stopping to get our attention and say, don't miss this? What is it? Well, I think if we were reading John in one sitting, like he probably intended his readers to do on most occasions, and not breaking this up into passage by passage over a year and a half, if we were reading John in one sitting, the presence of water, the appearance of water at this moment would probably call to our memory a few scenes from earlier in John's gospel. Three of them in particular. First, in John chapter 3, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. And he said, we know that you're from God because of all the things that you do. Nobody could do what you do if you weren't from God. But it's essentially going like, what's your deal? Who are you? What, What are you all about? And Jesus tells him, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus is confused. What do you mean born again? Like, how can, I, how can a man be born again when he's old? Surely I can't climb back into my mother's womb and make myself born a second time. What are you talking about? And Jesus clarifies in John 3, 5, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he goes on to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit as like wind. You don't see it. You don't know where it's coming from, but you feel it. And you see its effects as it rushes past your face and as it blows through the trees. You see it. And the Holy Spirit is the same way. And all those who are born of the Spirit of God are just like that. The Spirit of God brings life. The Spirit of God restores life to dead souls mysteriously, providentially, by God's work without our awareness and seeing, except that we feel its effects. We can see new life come about. And he calls that being born of water and the Spirit. So Jesus has connected water and Spirit, the Holy Spirit, together as a way of talking about new eternal life that the Spirit of God would bring about. So I think that's the first scene. If you're looking at Jesus on the cross, they pierce his side and water comes out. You might think, Jesus talked about water. Jesus said that unless I'm born of water and the Spirit, I can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Just one chapter later, in John chapter 4, Jesus had a conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well. You'll remember she was there in the middle of the day, probably trying to avoid crowds. And Jesus walked up and said, give me a drink. And she went, how is it that you're talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Like, this is breaking all kinds of social norms, right? And he says, if you knew 
who it was that you're talking to and who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There's water again. And she says, give me this water. He says, whoever drinks of the water, in John 4, 13, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Water, in Jesus' mind, is symbolic of life and spirit and rebirth. New life that comes from the Spirit of God through this, the picture of water bubbling up, springing up to eternal life. So when we see Jesus on the cross and water coming from his pierced side, we might remember Jesus said that he would give water, living water that would spring up to eternal life to anyone who would believe in him. We might also remember in chapter 7, when Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, on the last day, where they do this big elaborate water ceremony, where they carry water from a spring and pour it on the altar in the temple, and they they quote this old verse about drawing uh, water from the wells of salvation as a way of picturing God's salvation and his provision for them. Jesus, in chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, that is when they're doing this water ceremony, stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You might already make a connection. Living water. Eternal life born of water and the Spirit. But then John does us a favor and makes it even more explicit in verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. At that point, in John 7, Jesus' glorification, that is the hour of his suffering and crucifixion and death and resurrection, had not yet come. So the Spirit of God was not yet given to his followers in this way. But he is saying, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What does that mean? It means the Spirit of God. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit that he will give to everyone who believes. Water, Spirit, and life are together this metaphor for eternal life for all those who would believe in Christ throughout John's gospel. So when we see the side of Jesus pierced and blood and water flow, perhaps we think this water might have to do with the life that will come through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you might even remember Jesus' more explicit promises to his disciples during his farewell speech where we've been much more recently in John's gospel. In John chapter 14, he told them in verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Right? For these disciples in that moment, he's, the spirit is with them. 
But there's a day coming for them when the Spirit would be in them. That day, by the way, happened in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the disciples were waiting for power to clothe them from on high, is the way Luke writes it in Acts 2. And the Spirit of God comes and indwells them, and suddenly they boldly proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. And he told them again in John 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I know that's a long way to go. But I think John intends for us to see water flowing from the side of Jesus as a metaphor for the life that comes through the Spirit of God to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. The water that flows from the riven side of our crucified Lord is a symbol of the eternal life that would fill the heart of everyone who would believe upon Him. It represents the Spirit of Christ coming to dwell within those who place their faith in Jesus and the cleansing for sin that was accomplished by his death on the cross. I think that's why he slows us down. This is for real. I saw this. Pay attention to this. There's an old praise song I used to sing a lot when I was in, I don't know, high school, college, that says, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well Your spirit lives within me because you died and rose again. Friends, because we have the life of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit living within us, we're equipped for life on mission. We're equipped for a life of holiness. We're equipped to fight against sin and to grow in Christian maturity and to develop bonds of trust and care within the church and to live out our lives as those with a message to share, good news to proclaim to those around us who need to hear it. And the reason we have the Holy Spirit in us to equip us for life in this way is because Jesus died. Through his death, our life comes. Praise God. His bones were not broken. His side was pierced. And finally, he is placed in a tomb. Look with me at verse 38. After these things... Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. I'm going to pause there. This burial scene is important for at least two reasons. Number one, the most obvious is that it sets the stage for the eternity-shaking events of Easter morning. But that's next week. 
The second thing that it does is it, it introduces us, if you will, or, or, or brings out of hiding two followers of Jesus who to this point who have remained in the shadows for fear of the other Jewish leaders. The first of those two is a man named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. John tells us in verse 38 that he is a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Mark actually gives us a further detail on this man. In Mark 15, verse 43, he tells us that Joseph was a member of the council, that is the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin is like the supreme court of the Jews. This is the group made up of Pharisees and scribes and priests and the high priest that is responsible for this plot to kill Jesus. The reason Jesus is hanging dead on a cross is because the Sanhedrin planned to put him to death. Now, Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, but did not go along with their plot. He tells us he was a member of the council who was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God. So Joseph is listening. Joseph has a spiritual mind, a spiritual ear, and he sees in Jesus, this is something special. This is unique. John tells us in verse 38 that Joseph has asked Pilate for permission to take custody of the body of Jesus, and Pilate grants him this request. So Joseph is now, by his probably compassion, but moved as he has seen what's happened to Jesus here, he's moved now out of the shadows to go to Pilate boldly and ask that he might take the body of Jesus into his personal custody. And the second of these guys is Nicodemus. You remember him. Actually just talked about him in chapter 3, the Pharisee that came to Jesus and said, what do I got to do? And Jesus said, you got to be born again. And he's like, what does that mean? That's the Nicodemus we're talking about. That Nicodemus appeared again in John chapter 7 when the Sanhedrin was meeting to discuss what to do about Jesus. They had planned to try to arrest him. They sent some officers to get him, and even the officers were like, this guy's too impressive. We can't do anything with him. And so the, the Pharisees and the, the priests were mad. They were like, who is listening to this guy? Let's just go get him. And Nicodemus spoke up in chapter 7, verse 50 and 51, and he said, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing? And learning what he does. And they answered him, are you from Galilee too? Right, so they, they have disdain for Nicodemus' response to that. But what Nicodemus is doing there is kind of going, let's just slow down. Like, let's at least give the guy a fair trial, right? So he doesn't come right out and say, I'm with him, right? I believe in him, I'm following him. But he is at least showing signs that he's, he's sympathetic to Jesus. Maybe inclined to believe him, but is afraid of what it will mean for him as a Pharisee, as a member of the Sanhedrin, to throw his lot in with Jesus. Because, of course, we know what happens to Jesus. But apparently, by this time, Nicodemus is convinced of the true identity of Jesus and has come to believe. Perhaps he's been born again by water and the Spirit, as Jesus had told him he must be. I find this detail so sweet and so encouraging it's so encouraging to me that this man of power and prestige, so afraid for so long, so uncertain, now finds the strength of faith and conviction to publicly identify himself with Jesus 
and throw his hand in among his followers. I'm with Jesus. That's what he's doing by going to him with all of these burial spices. By the way, 75 pounds worth of burial spices, that's a standard amount to, for the preparing of a body, but it's way more than Nicodemus is going to carry by himself. So he's got to bring his own probably servants and helpers to help him bring all of these burial spices. And so he has now enlisted his servants to come and help him bury Jesus. He's obviously publicly aligning himself now with Jesus even though he for so long had been in this position of power and prestige and nobility, so hard to turn. And I just got to ask, who in your life do you think will never turn to Christ? Is there somebody that comes to your mind and you think, I really wish that so-and-so, my family member, my friend, my co-worker, my doctor, my neighbor, my child, whoever it is, I really wish they would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. And maybe even at times, it seems like they're so close. It seems like they're just right on the edge, but something keeps them back. Don't lose hope. Don't give up hope. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, turns and trusts Christ and publicly aligns himself with Jesus and his kingdom. Pray. Speak the gospel. Invite your friend or family member to, uh, to, to a church gathering or to a Bible study or don't give up hope. God may be working in his heart even still. So verse 39, Nicodemus comes bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes to help to prepare the body of Jesus for burial. So look at, with us in verse 41. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Matthew actually gives us the additional detail that this tomb belongs to Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea, this wealthy man, apparently, who has come and, uh, and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. It says, he laid Jesus in his own new tomb, which he had cut from the rock. And he rolled a great stone in front of the entrance. And so this tomb belongs to Joseph. No one has used it. They have not lain anybody else in this tomb. It's a new tomb, one body in. That's an important detail for the events that are going to come next week. Because if there's only one body in there right now, when they find it empty, there's only one possibility for what happened. So verse 42 tells us, So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So Jesus is laid to rest in this tomb. I want to share with you some song lyrics that I think are very fitting and poignant by Andrew Peterson called God Rested, and it's about the, the laying of Jesus in the tomb. So they took his body down. The man who said he was the resurrection and the life was lifeless on the ground now. The sky was red as blood along the blade of night. As the Sabbath fell, they shrouded him in linen and dressed him like a wound. The rich man and the women, they laid him in the tomb. So they laid their hopes away 
They buried all their dreams about the kingdom, he proclaimed, and they sealed them in the grave as a holy silence fell on all Jerusalem. Six days shall you labor, the seventh is the Lord's. In six he made the earth and all the heavens, but he rested on the seventh. God rested. He said that it was finished, and the seventh day he blessed it. God rested. So Jesus is dead. He has been taken down from the cross that bled his life away. His friends have covered him in burial spices, wrapped him in linen cloths, laid his lifeless body inside a freshly cut stone tomb. And they've rolled a heavy stone in front of the entrance. No one gets in, and for sure, no one gets out. Unless, well, maybe that's a story for another day. Let's pray.